Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast and the Amplifying Thought Leaders podcast. I have uh, Fadel Haboub. He's an associate professor of economics at Denison University. He's also the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Uh, he's held research affiliations with the Le- Levy Economics Institute, uh, the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And he's an expert on mon- modern monetary theory, uh, what he calls the Green New Deal and a job guarantee. And his work focuses on public policy to enhance Monetary and economic sovereignty in the global south. So that's that's what he's about. So Fidel, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, it seems from the description that your I don't know, like you know, your interest and your activity is incredibly diverse. What what's been the focus of it? Let's say the past you know six months, and uh, what what theories or uh, you know types of uh, programs do you want to focus on most that we'll discuss? Sure. So as as somebody who uh, who comes from the global south, I, I grew up in the Middle East originally, but as somebody who lives in the U.S. and works in the U.S., I, I live in, in two different time zones at least, if not more. So my work reflects that. So because um, my economic theory and policy expertise is on area called MMT or modern monetary theory, which is an approach that challenges the mainstream policy framework that says a government can only afford to pay for things that we can raise tax revenues for or borrow you know, from financial markets for. Beyond that, you know, anything the government wants to pay for would be inflationary, would bankrupt the country. And MMT essentially says not necessarily. There's this plenty of additional policy space, spending capacity that we're not tapping into. 
So my area of specialty essentially says that different countries have different degrees of spending capacity. Countries like the U.S., Japan, Canada, we have plenty of untapped spending capacity that we can engage in, such as on a Green New Deal, dealing with inequality, healthcare, climate mitigation. We can do all of this without or before hitting the inflation constraint. And developing countries are much more constrained. So my work in that area is about putting in place strategic policies that will actually allow them over time to increase their spending, their spending capacity and build more resilience to external constraints and inflation. And tax. So that's kind of in, in a nutshell, the, the work that I'm engaged in. And I'm happy to, you know, get into the details of how this actually yeah, works. In terms of, let, let's start with inflation. I mean, what, what actually have you observed causes inflation? What factors contribute to it? Which ones don't contribute, but people think they do? Very good question. So in the context of the U.S., to be more specific here, we, uh, from, from an MMT perspective, modern monetary perspective, there's two sources that uh, create the risk of inflation, one of which has to do with the shortage of productive capacity. In other words, if we ran out of productive materials, technology, uh, skilled people, and we decide to increase spending and increase demand in a, in a particular area, such as healthcare or construction, then we're literally bidding up prices and causing inflation. The good news about that kind of inflation is that we know how to mitigate for it and how to plan for it by building more productive capacity, by training more people. So the good news is that we can create millions of jobs in that space and actually mitigate the risk of inflation. The second source of risk of inflation, which is trickier than the first one, has to do with too much market power, abusive price-setting behavior in key industry. In the case of the U.S., think of pharmaceuticals, think of insurance companies, think of uh, energy companies, telecoms. All of these markets have a high degree of market concentration that allows individual players to raise prices simply because they can, or in other words, simply because we let them, because we're not enforcing antitrust laws. We're not democratizing those markets. We're not making them more competitive. And Wait, what, what markets do you think are prone to, to raising prices more than they quote unquote should? And I would think competition would step in, but what markets do you think are most vulnerable to this? Well, I, I mentioned a few. So health insurance companies, your, your telecom companies. I mean, I, I don't know where you are in the country, but uh, many of us here in, in the Midwest and Appalachia, especially in, in rural areas, where you only have one internet service provider, and if you don't like it, there's nothing you can do. And you look at your bills the last three or four years, and it's constantly going up with the quality of the service the same, if not deteriorating. There's nothing you can, that's not a competitive market. <laughs> and it's not an easy market to enter into if the market that's been essentially segregated for key players to, to dominate. Think I can of, tell you that happens with medications. Like, exactly. Yeah, I, take, I take a couple of medications and they go up every single month. Yeah, what can and you do them, about it? Yeah, what, nothing. One of them I've been taking for 20 years, and it's literally gone right. up from like 40 bucks to 350 bucks. It's the right. same crap that they send, and you know, yeah, it's sure. crazy. So there's, there's a bunch of these areas in the economy. Most consumers know what they are. And when you dig into the actual data, in the case of the U.S., currently you find four major drivers of inflation. One is healthcare. We just talked about this. The second one is energy and transportation. 
The third one is, is housing, real estate, especially in some key markets in the U.S. And the fourth one is higher education, which is a, a little bit different than the first. Higher education, partly because we cut support to state institutions, public institutions. So they had to rely more on raising tuition. And that allows private colleges to match them and, and kind of race to the top in terms of the cost. But also colleges and universities, a big burden in terms of their financial costs is the cost of healthcare for their staff, is the cost of energy and transportation, heating and cooling those buildings and running the operations, which come from those three areas that I mentioned, healthcare, energy and transportation, cost of real estate. And so these are the, the drivers of inflation. And what you find in those areas, you find those two sources of inflation risk that I mentioned earlier. One is shortage of productive capacity that forces us to exclude people from health, from education, from energy and transportation, and market concentration that allows those key players in oil and gas industry and utilities and so on to raise prices simply because we let them. So that kind of inflation, by the way, it's not going to go away by spending less, by saying we can't afford a Green New Deal or we can't afford public infrastructure investments and all that. That type of inflation only goes away if we tax and regulate it out of existence. In other words, if the 535 elected officials we send to Washington, D.C. actually do their job, which is tax and regulate in order to provide for the public good. The problem is, as you probably guessed, is that if those 535 people are the government of the people, by the people, for the people, they'll actually implement antitrust laws and and democratize the market and make it more competitive. But if they're the government of the super PACs, by the super PACs, for the super PACs, they're not going to bite the hands that feed them. So this becomes a question of democracy, a question of, you know, restoring, uh, introducing basic democratic principles that make the market more competitive and democratic. So MMT shines this bright light on these kind of nuances that drive the inflation forces within the system. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Whereas the mainstream of the economics profession has this kind of mechanical explanation that says any increase in government spending beyond tax revenues, any big deficit, any large national debt will cause hyperinflation. And then they'll point to, they say, look at Venezuela, look at Zimbabwe. We tried those things. They cause hyperinflation. But the problem is countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela and all of these developing countries, they don't have a sovereign monetary system like the U.S., our entire national debt in the U.S. is denominated in U.S. dollars, U.S. dollars that the federal government can always honor. The best example, forget about the U.S., Japan has the largest debt-to-GDP ratio in the world, but they're hmm. entire, almost 260% right now. And it's not new. It's been growing for decades. And mainstream theory tells us, and, and mainstream policy advisors 
have been telling us for three decades now that Japan is going to have hyperinflation, that Japan is going to go bankrupt, that Japan was going to have very high interest rates that will destroy their business. Well, guess what? For 30 years, Japan is struggling with deflation, not inflation. For 30 years, Japan is struggling with negative interest rates, not very high interest rates. And Japan cannot default on its debt because all of it is denominated in the national currency, in Japanese yen. Which yeah, but my, my question, though, I mean, out of. would you consider Japan's economy healthy the past 30 years or stagnant or like, well, how would you characterize it? Yeah, Japan's economy is not perfect in any sense of the term, but its problems are definitely not inflation and not high interest rates and not bankruptcy. Japan has an aging population. Japan has immigration constraints where their workforce is aging. And as a result, they have uh, healthy people who live long enough to, you know, well into their retirement years. So they have a a demographic problem. If they had an open immigration policy, they'll have a healthier, younger labor force to invigorate their their economy. Those are their problems. Their problem is not inflation. Their problem is not high interest rates or, or bankruptcy. So when we compare the U.S. to other countries, Japan is probably a better comparison because they have a sovereign monetary system or has Venezuela or Zimbabwe or any of these countries, they have a a completely broken economic system. They don't have enough productive capacity. They import most of their food. They import most of their medicine, most of their resources. They have very limited domestic productive capacity, unlike what we have here in the U.S. So a country that's like that, as their currency declines in value, it's, I guess, it's a vicious circle. They have to pay more to get all the imported things that they're using. Right. Uh, they're using it with their debauched or deflated currency and it gets harder and harder and more expensive. And I guess they have to enter into more bad deals that are economically unfavorable to them, too. Right. So most countries that struggle with weaker currencies, this is a, in many cases the legacy of colonialism, post-colonialism and bad economic policies for a long time. So those countries typically suffer from three structural weaknesses. One is lack of food sovereignty, food security. They have to import a lot of their food. And you really can't run an economy without food and without energy, you know, basic uh, resources to to feed people and to run the economy, transportation, heating and cooling, energy for producing, for manufacturing and so on. So the second source of deficiency for most developing countries is the lack of energy sovereignty. They have to import a lot of their energy. And by the way, this is true even for the biggest oil producers in the global south. So countries like Venezuela, countries like Nigeria, that are major crude oil producers. But guess what they do? They end up exporting crude oil, which is simply raw materials, which is useless. You can't really run an economy with crude oil. And then they re-import it as refined petrochemicals, gasoline and kerosene and other industrial petrochemicals, which is higher value added content. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So you export the raw material, the cheap version, and you import the more expensive, more refined, higher value added version of it, which means you're constantly losing in that trade. And this is for the biggest exporters, let alone for countries who actually have to import the energy to begin with. So that's the second source of weakness for developing countries. The third one, which is the more challenging one, structural one, which is the kind of industrialization that most of these countries specialized in, specializes in low-value-added content of manufacturing. In other words, you use lower-cost labor, and you lower your environmental standards, your labor standards, your regulatory standards to 
attract foreign investors to bring in the assembly line type of work. So you import the capital equipment, you import the machinery, you import even the intermediate goods that you're going to assemble. And then you use low cost labor to assemble a final product for export. So Mm -hmm. in that type of manufacturing, you're also constantly losing because the value added of what you produce is low and the value added of what you import is high. So now you have these three components essentially forcing you to dig yourself deeper, deeper into the hole. So at the end of every year, you end up with a trade deficit that applies downward pressure on the value of your currency. And now comes the crisis, because when your currency is weaker relative to the dollar or the British pound or the euro, then you're literally the next morning when you're importing food or medicine or basic necessity for your country, you're importing it at a higher cost, which means you're literally importing inflation. And this is a very sensitive issue for developing countries. If you import inflated food and inflated medicine, you literally have riots. You have social instability, political instability. So what do you do to protect your most vulnerable people from food inflation and and medical price inflation and all of that? The central bank of that government or the Ministry of Finance, depending on how it's organized, will step in and artificially fix the value of the exchange rate at a stable high value relative to the dollar. And the only way to do that is by borrowing from the IMF, from international lenders, they have to have dollars. So now they have an external debt. This is the big difference between U.S. national debt and Nigeria's national debt or India's national debt or Zimbabwe's national debt. It's denominated in a foreign currency and they do it because they need to protect from the inflation cycle. And if they don't have access to anybody to lend them dollars, then their currency is in a free fall and they experience hyperinflation. So those are really the huge differences between a country like the US, Japan, the UK, and the the way we manage our economy versus small developing countries or even large developing countries that have all of these structural vulnerabilities that are very challenging to fix. But MMT shines this bright light and says, oh, we know what the source of those structural weaknesses are. You need to invest in more food security domestically so you protect at least your food price system from external shocks. You need to invest, especially in this day and age, in domestic energy production, in renewables ideally today, because that allows you to insulate your economy from oil price fluctuations, from a conflict in the Middle East, from uh, a ship stuck in the <laughs> in the Suez Canal and all of that. All of those external shocks uh, put all the global South countries in, in extremely vulnerable positions and at risk of very serious instability that has long-term consequence. And then the third structural weakness, the only way for countries to climb up the value-added chain ladder, so to speak, is to invest in education and technical skills and vocational training so that over time you start specializing in more complex production systems that allows you to capture higher value-added content. So those are really the, the, the main structures that we deal with in the global south. It has nothing to do with economies like the U.S. and Japan and U.K. But what's, um, so how do how do country, how and why don't countries seem to understand this and take these principles seriously? Why don't they, is it just corrupt yeah. leaders that borrow from the World Bank? They take a cut and they indebt the country and say, who cares? Or uh, like, why does it continue? Yeah. 
There, there is some of that. I'm not going to deny there isn't any corruption, but it's, it's actually much worse than that, I think. It has to do with traditional economic policy advice that comes out of mainstream economics from World Bank economists, IMF economists for, for a long time, which is the following. They look at a developing country, they say, oh, you have a trade deficit. You have this external debt that's really creating a, uh, an external constraint on your economy. Here's what you need to do to earn more dollars. I'm going to list a few of these policies, and then I'm, at the same time, I'm going to debunk. They say, how about this? Yeah, beautiful weather, beautiful beaches, beautiful landscape and places to visit. How about you invest in tourism? You attract millions of tourists. They come in and bring their dollars, and they create jobs in the hotel and restaurant industry, and, and that allows you to grow your economy and, and prosper. Well, here's the problem with tourism. When you bring millions of tourists into a developing country, you're going to have to feed them. So you end up importing more food and you're going to have to transport them, heat and cool hotels for them. So you end up importing even more energy. Those are the two of the structural weaknesses. You just made them worse. Number two, you're not the only country. They they buy things, but they don't pay taxes on an ongoing basis as a citizen of that country either. Well, here's the other thing. You're competing with maybe 150 other beautiful countries around the world. So you're racing to the bottom to attract even more tourists. And so that's, you know, it does in the short term, it does create jobs in hotels. It does help, you know, families uh, with, you know, income support and so on. But as a long-term strategy, you're actually digging yourself deeper into that hole. So that's strategy number one. Strategy number two, they say, open your economy to foreign direct investment. Companies from all over the world, the U.S. and U.K. and France will outsource jobs and bring manufacturing to your country that will help you industrialize and create jobs and so on. Well, sounds great, except which companies will outsource from the US, from Canada, from the UK to uh, a developing country in Africa or in Latin America? Well, they're looking for lower cost of production, which means they would like to, you know, bring all their equipment, all the technology, all the know-how and higher assembly line type of workers. So again, that trap that I mentioned earlier, which is specializing in assembly line. And again, you're not the only country trying to do that. There's another 150 some countries trying to do the same. So you're racing to the bottom. You give them tax cuts. You give them the land for free. You give them subsidized electricity. You give them subsidized pension for workers. So they hire them even cheaper. All of that is a long-term trap, right? Uh, Number three, they tell you, well, how about the government gets out of the way why is the government own telecom companies? Why does the government own the public utilities for electricity and water? Why does the government need to run the airport and the airlines? Let's sell those you know, government-owned enterprises. That generates hundreds of millions of dollars. That allows you to pay for the things that you need to pay for, including your debt and you know, import uh, technology or whatever you need for schools and public health and so on. Well, the problem with that, once you sell the airport, you can't sell it again after three years. You get the $300 million, it's spent, it's gone, and now you're faced a situation where the government is weaker, the government doesn't have, has even less economic sovereignty, and you're back to square one. Strategy, the next strategy, I'm listing all of them now, has to do with remittances. A lot of countries, including my, my home country, Tunisia and North Africa, back in the 70s, this was considered a huge thing. Uh, remittances, meaning workers... Sending money back home, yeah. Yeah, workers going to Europe, going to the US, Australia, getting good jobs, earning income, and then sending money back home. I mean, for a country like uh, Lebanon, 15% of GDP at some point was remittances. That's like the biggest component of GDP was literally brain drain. 
And of course, with immigration restrictions in Europe and the U.S. and other places, who are the only individuals who can actually make that move? It's the doctors and the engineers and the IT technicians, the people that you need the most in developing countries, right, to build the infrastructure, to to staff the schools and universities and factories and so on. So that becomes another, you know, source of weakness. You invest in 20, 25 years worth of education and health to produce the best and the brightest, and then you send them as a gift to the rest of the world, hoping for a few dollars to come back every year and a little bit of that. Not, not a smart strategy. It's unsustainable in the long term. Next strategy, they say export-led growth. You know, try to encourage your own manufacturers, local businesses to produce whatever the rest of the world wants and, and start exporting. You generate revenues and that allows you to grow. Well, here's the problem with that. I'll give you an example in agriculture, an example in, in manufacturing. In, in manufacturing, it turns out if you're a developing country, you don't actually have the industrial base to begin with. So you end up importing all the capital. You end up importing all the intermediate goods and you specialize in assembly line type of thing. And you end up subsidizing those manufacturers because you want to ex- encourage exports and all that. You subsidize them with energy. You subsidize them with lower cost of labor and so on. Again, long-term trap. In agriculture, it's even worse, especially in countries that have, you know, serious food, um, lack of food security and so on. In Tunisia, for example, and many other countries in North Africa, you find governments encouraging farmers to use the most fertile land, the most precious, scarce water resources to produce things like strawberries. Why strawberries? Because Europeans like to buy strawberries and they pay a premium for them. So they're very attractive as an export commodity. But then the country for its own food security can't produce enough wheat, right? Which is a basic food staple in North Africa for for bread, for pasta, for couscous, for things like that. So you end up using your most precious resources to export and earn euros. And then you put yourself in a vulnerable position having to import wheat from Australia, from the Ukraine, from Russia, from the U.S. at prices, at world prices that you can't control, at world prices that can really hit you hard, which means hit the most basic food security needs of your people. Not very sustainable ecologically or economically. So these are the kinds of traps that most developing countries are stuck, are trapped into. And in the last year or so, especially with the with the pandemic, it finally exposed all of these vulnerabilities, not, not just because MMT economists have been saying this and development economists who are kind of informed by MMT analysis, but because the whole world saw it, right? So now we have even kind of mainstream politicians saying, well, we need to do something about food security. We need to do something about our excessive reliance on tourism. What are we going to do? So those are the kinds now of... There is. Now there is no tourism. Exactly. Yes out from what about the I, I speak to people in india and pakistan and a lot of these countries and they have countless millions of day laborers and you know the whole right pandemic nonsense has killed and disenfranchised those people even more than they were before if they don't work they don't eat what's absolutely. what's that going to do to the economies of these places absolutely and what and what mmt has been suggesting for a long time is that the most precious resources that you have are resources that you have domestically, mobilizing your own labor resources, your own indigenous knowledge to build a more resilient economy internally. And you can't have a resilient economy unless you have food security and energy security, as I said earlier. You have to feed people. That's basic. (laughs) You can't run an economy without labor, without people. 
and you can't run an economy, a functioning economy, without the use of energy. So if you don't build those bases and reinforce the bases with better education, technical skills, investment in infrastructure, investment in public health, then you're not really going anywhere. So what many developing countries have been forced to do is, is kind of uh, jump several steps ahead and start with industrialization because that was the way to kind of build factories. It looks like you're modern. It looks like you're assembling these very fancy products, including TV sets and computer screens and, and things. And it looks like, you know, technology, right? A country that produces components for IBM, a country that produces components for BMW. It sounds like industrialization and progress. But in reality, you're importing all the components and you're gluing things together and screwing things together with low-cost labor. So it's an illusion of industrialization. It's not true industrialization. So true mm -hmm. industrialization where you actually capture most of the value added is when you have kind of a local network of interconnected factories that produce components for each other so that each one is adding value on the next one. But what we have globally is we have a global supply chain where most developing countries only produce a subcomponent of the entire supply chain and have no control over the rest of it. So literally you have dozens and dozens of developing countries who don't have any domestic industrial strategy. Their industrial strategy is determined by the outside, by the global north, by what uh, IBM and Honda and all the major manufacturers have designed. And those multinational corporations, they find the ideal locations for producing each subcomponent, and they, must, they find the most effective supply chain, cost-effective supply chain to assemble them all together and then start exporting to the entire world. That's how they dominate markets. So you're just a small pawn in that puzzle. And I always say this to, to developing countries in particular. If you don't have a vision for yourself, kind of a long-term strategic plan, that will tell you how to get out of this trap, then you're definitely going to be part of somebody else's vision, long-term mm -hmm. vision. What are the countries that have long-term 50-year plans? The US, it's uh, the UK, the European Union, Japan, China. Those are the countries that have the long-term strategic views and they design the rest of the global political system and economic system so that the smaller countries fall into the piece of the puzzle that they designed for them. So at the minimum, you know, number one, you understand what the vision of the U.S. is, what the vision of China is, what the vision of the EU is. Well, well actually, are what, what, are, what are those visions? Like the, the U.S., I would think, based on what you said, the number one thing that they must protect is the sovereignty of the U.S. dollar. Otherwise, we're, you know, we would lose our uh, ability to, to do things monetarily that we otherwise couldn't. Well, uh, yes, partly. But you have to realize that the power of the U.S. dollar and its influence is, is the result of U.S. economic uh, influence. It's not the source of it. In other words, we can't declare a currency to be sovereign. You actually have to earn it. And the way to earn it is through actual productive capacity. And the U.S. does have the productive capacity, not just domestically. You have to recognize that quite a bit of the U.S. productive capacity is situated abroad through multinational corporations that happen to be linked or based or partly owned by the U.S. Uh, the US economy. That's where the real power is. It's always in real productive capacity. Now, notice what China's policy has been in the last 20 years, their, their vision for you know, building access, 
uh, deep into the African continent, deep into Latin America, all the way into the European continent through their infrastructure plan. And they're fitting every country on the way in that path into their puzzle, starting with their neighbors, all the way into Europe, all the way into Africa, partly because they know that their economic dominance needs to be fueled by access to resources. So all of their partnerships is about finding access to those natural resources, mining, agriculture, rare earth materials, and they're enticing other countries into diplomatic agreements with them in order to feed their long-term global plan. It's not a charity, right? Uh, so the country that has the most aggressive global vision, strategic vision, is by far China. The U.S. is sort of playing catch up because we've been busy with a bunch of nonsense over the last couple of decades, right? Because we've lost track of what it means to have a strategy. We've focused on geopolitical uh, goals and we've lost track of the actual source that allows you to have the geopolitical influence. You can't be a geopolitical influencer if you have no economic basis to support it, mm. right? And I think that's the big strategic mistake that the U.S. Is, is falling into. Maybe in the next decade or so, we'll realize that we need to you know, restart the basis of the U.S. economy. Maybe part of it is, is the Biden infrastructure plan, because you can't have an economy with a resilient infrastructure, with an educated and skilled labor force. We've lost track of the importance of, of those. We can't shift the burden on individuals to pay for their education and push them deep into debt. We can't build the economy of the future if we don't have high-speed broadband infrastructure. We can't be in the economy of the future because the economy of the future is going to be artificial intelligence and robotics and automation if we don't have the technical skills and the labor force to actually staff that future economy. So all of those investments, long overdue, maybe now we'll catch up with this infrastructure plan if we do it the right way and the strategic way. So those, those are the kinds of things that I, uh, that I spend my, my days and nights uh, thinking about and talking about. Well, if you were to advise the U.S. how to strengthen its position and its finances around the world and at home, what would you say? And then same thing for China. Like, what would be your advice if, if both countries hired you and said, help us become more dominant? What do we do? Well, I, I wouldn't be their top pick for, for helping them to become more dominant because most of my, my work is, is not necessarily about dominance. It's about prosperity for all because I believe we can truly have global prosperity without necessarily imperialistic dominance. So, but for how, example... But, yeah, so so if, if the world was to listen to you, yeah. what would change? What, would, what, what kind of change would you implement specifically? What would you do? Well, I'll start with, with something. Let's start with the, with the U.S. I'll start with something that is kind of lurking in the background as we speak. And it's huge financial instability risks that are building up in the U.S. financial markets as we speak. Don't take my word for it. The Fed is panicking quietly about it. The SEC, the Federal Housing Finance Agency is quietly panicking about it. Wall Street is panicking. Uh, insurance companies are panicking about it, which is the IPCC report from a couple of years ago that gave us 12 years to act on a massive scale on climate change. Well, as soon as that came out and made that big fuss in the news, Wall Street companies and insurance companies started doing their own internal studies on this. And one of those leaked out to The Guardian last year from JP Morgan. And they basically said those IPCC guys, they are optimistic. It's actually much worse than that. 
BlackRock said the same, and the Fed and the ECB, all of them started looking at the built-in financial risks that are actually lurking on balance sheets right now in the trillions of dollars, potentially even more, that will materialize in the next 20 to 30 years. Some of those risks are actually happening right now. For example, one study looked at just coastal real estate properties in the U.S., and they estimated by 2045, which is 25 years from now, basically, if I get a mortgage in Florida today, that risk is on my mortgage, which means an insurance company will not insure it, a bank will not take that risk and put it on their books. Well, all of those are currently on somebody's books. So they estimated $1 trillion worth of stranded assets. Stranded assets means it's an asset that's valuable today, like a hotel, resort, a beautiful home on the beach that's worth X number of dollars in 2045 the value of all those properties will decline by a trillion dollars. And that's just the U.S., just coastal properties. Think about as we globally, hopefully, accelerate the transition to renewable energy. And this is purely on economic competitiveness, right? Solar and wind and geothermal is just displacing coal and and fossil fuels on efficiency uh, grounds. As we do this, What's going to happen to the value of all the oil and gas infrastructure that's currently in place and that was presumed to be productive for the next 50 years? Those are called stranded assets because they become literally useless. We have trillions of dollars worth of fossil fuels that are proven oil reserves, for example, that are actually priced into the value of oil and gas companies. Those are unburnable fossil fuels, if we're going to survive as a planet by the end of the century, which means they're worth nothing if they're not burned, if they're not extracted and sold in the market. So the most conservative estimates I've seen, we're talking 20 to $30 trillion worth of stranded assets, worth of what we call the carbon bubble, the biggest financial market bubble that will collapse. So as we speak, the Fed has now a climate change committee that's looking carefully into this. The SEC right now has a has a 90-day open comment period saying, how should we you know, mitigate for this? Uh, as I said, the Federal Housing uh, Agency, Finance Housing Agency, is also looking at literally properties in Florida and California that insurance companies are refusing to insure, which means banks are refusing to you know, uh, uh, originate mortgages for. Those risks are going to accelerate with the effects of climate change. So how do we mitigate these risks? in the U.S. while we address global issues. So for me, all of this is what I call climate debt, right? So who is responsible for most CO2 emissions globally since the Industrial Revolution? Uh, it's the global north. Who's, who are the victims of most of the effects of climate change? It's the global south that hasn't been responsible for this. So there is the concept of reparation means you transfer not only financial resources to help the global south mitigate these risks, but also you transfer technology in order for us to accelerate this. Number two in this process is the issue of climate refugees, which is a, a new concept to a lot of people that many people in the UN even refuse to accept it as a legal concept yet, but sooner or later they will. And don't take my word for it. Uh, studies by agencies like the World Bank, for example, are estimating by 2050, millions of people in Africa and Latin America and Asia will be on the move because of climate change events. And where are they going? They're going to the global north, putting pressure on schools, on housing, on food, on jobs. All of this is extremely destabilizing. 
So how are we going to face that future in 2045 and 2050? We have to build the resilient infrastructure for it. We have to be prepared both in the global north and the global south. Well, the good news from an MMT perspective is that the global north countries have this additional spending capacity that I talked about. They have the technological capabilities so we can, quote unquote, pay for that reparations to literally repair the broken system. So that's kind of a subcomponent of what I would call a global Green New Deal, where we can mitigate all these risks globally, save financial markets in the global north, be ready for the oncoming climate refugees crisis. I mean, a few million people moved from Syria because of the conflict and the world panicked. Just wait for the climate refugees and then we'll see what, what we'll be facing. Now, we have an opportunity to start the work today and to create millions of jobs and to make countries more resilient and to rapidly decarbonize and meet the challenge of the century. Well, I mean, from what I understand, though, wind and solar, they have to use rare earth metals to produce them and they have to use current fossil fuels to make the equipment. Yeah. Then it has to be repaired and replaced, et cetera, and it's being subsidized. Yep. So, I mean, economically, if you do a calculus of the damage that will come from climate change that's anticipated versus the cost yep. to mitigate it, what does that look like? And I talk about this all the time. So the, the one thing I always say in my conversations about a Green New Deal, or especially on the technology front, is we have good technology, but it's not good enough which means we can't have a Green New Deal nationally or globally unless we dedicate a significant amount of resources to research and development, especially material science research, to produce a truly circular economy in which every item I buy from uh, Amazon or Best Buy or from Walmart comes in a little box and comes with a user manual. And the user manual, for me, needs to come with a living will. A living will that says, this is how you dispose of me once you're done with me. In other words, we have to figure out uh, how to reintroduce every item, every component in this new technological universe to reintroduce it back into a circular economy. And we have to build the recycling infrastructure. So it's not, it shouldn't be a burden on, on cities or a burden on, on individuals. In other words, we have to make it a no-brainer that a certain product has certain components, certain precious raw materials in it. Otherwise, we're going to destroy the ecosystem. And most of that damage, by the way, for rare earth materials and mining products is in the global south. That has significant ecological impact. So we have plenty of room to go in terms of decarbonizing and producing renewables, but we're not even close in meeting this challenge. For example, the solar panels that we have now, the most sophisticated, most energy efficient uh, solar panels, we don't even know what we're going to do with them in 35 years when they become obsolete. We have no plan, no infrastructure, very little uh, engineering research in terms of what we do with the poisonous stuff in them. We're not going to put them in landfills. So we have to dedicate plenty of brain power, research and development into that space. And I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in science. And when we put our minds to it, when we dedicate the resources to it, we will find technological solutions, but we're not going to do it by sitting on our hands and saying we can't afford it and the world is going to collapse. Who do you think are going to be the leaders of the type of change that you're talking about? And like, what, what's the battle of interest look like? What's the balance of interest look like? Who is uh, 
seems to be going in the right way, who seems to be uh, pulling back and taking things the other direction. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that the U.S. is going to be this leader because and what gives me a little bit of hope cautiously is the fact that, as I said, that the Wall Street insurance companies, the Fed, the ECB are panicking. So financial markets know that there is a very serious channel, a challenge and that they need to take it seriously. But are we going to wait for Wall Street to, to set uh, the standards for, for, our, for the rest of the century? Because I guarantee you they're not going to mitigate beyond kind of building protection for their interest and, and their balance sheets and so on. But I'm hoping that this is an opportunity for the environmental movements, at least in the U.S., the, the Sunrise Movement and the Sierra Clubs of the world and so on, to use this opportunity to double down on the pressure on the U.S. government to take climate mitigation more seriously beyond just building resilience for Wall Street, but actually doing the mitigation and recognizing that building mitigation systems in the U.S. is great, but it's not sufficient because climate change is global. So we're going to have to do it in the rest of the world. Sure, Japan and Canada and the U.K. and the European Union, they should be having their own Green New Deals, too. But how about the rest of the world, the global south, which is where the climate refugees will be coming from, which is where the food insecurity is already happening, which is where the energy insecurity is already happening. So we're not going to win this challenge unless we win it globally. So the U.S. has to play a role because that's the obvious reality today. The U.S. is the dominant, most influential country. And if we're going to leverage that to fight this, you know, the, the struggle of the century, the U.S. is going to have to do it. And it's going to be done sooner rather than later, because the, the longer we wait, the more challenging this is going to be. And one last question. It may seem strange, but who, who runs the world? Who do you think are the, uh, the top of the top of the top that really run the world? Do you think it's not just a few groups? It's just very widely distributed. And there is, uh, there, you know, there is a, a big marketplace of, of, you know, countries or powerful organizations, but there's no really that stick out. Or do you think there are a few? So I'm not sure what you mean by who, who runs the world. Uh, I think. Well, no, that, that, that's exactly, yeah. Well, what I mean is, yeah. Who do you consider? Are they governments? Are they organizations? Are they individuals? Like who do you think oh. really has the heaviest hand in deciding what policies will be enacted or not? And who's like some of the biggest influencers in the world? In your experience so so clearly the u.s has a major role within the u.n within the security system for example has a veto power along with four other countries and and the world bank and the imf uh, certainly the u.s has a veto power it's just the way the organization was set up uh, and that's extremely influential in terms of how things are done in the wto uh, countries like the u.s and the uk are extremely influential because the entire organization was set up based on uh, the interest of, of the U.S. And we've seen this recently. I don't know if you've followed the, the situation with the vaccines in, in countries like South Africa and, and India saying, give us the formula. We have the capacity to produce millions of vaccines to help people in our country and around the, the global south. And what did the U.S. and the U.K. say? No, you can't. But you're more than welcome to buy them from us. We'll right. give you a discount, which is, you know, when it comes to human rights issues, this is unacceptable, right? The The fact that we're dealing with the global pandemic and we're still prioritizing the interest of Pfizer and other pharmaceuticals is, is really not helping anybody. I mean, it's like shooting yourself in the foot when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. Very short-sighted, but it tells you who runs the world, who sets the standards. So within that context, in terms of these are the countries of the global north that really kind of are extremely influential, then the next layer of influence 
is internally in terms of who runs the U.S. government. Well, it's Congress and the president. Well, who supports their campaigns? Well, that's where we get into the super PACs. That's where we get into the power and influence of the oligarchy, not a government of the people, by the people, for the people, but a government, you know, brought to you by, you know, those uh, NASCAR jackets with a bunch of sponsors on them. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. Same is true in other parts of the the world. It's not just the U.S., obviously. That would be funny well, if, if, if the... Uh... If the president and all the elected officials, at least in the U.S., had to wear a jacket that showed their biggest sponsors on it and patches, you know, that'd be very interesting. Yeah, that's how I see it. That would be super interesting. Yeah. So so that's what we're talking about. Fundamentally, it's a question about democracy. It's a question about, you know, how do we as a as a democratic society, do we believe in the basic democratic principles or do we believe in the power and influence of the few? to determine how the U.S. economy is run and, as a result, how the rest of the world is run. That's what we're talking about. And you can't really tackle these issues with with just angry people, with pitchforks. I'd like to see more informed, better informed pitchforks so that when you're opposing a particular government or particular political party, not only will you oppose them because you know that they're not doing a good job, they're not serving your interest, the interest of the people, but you also have a clear vision about what needs to be done so that you're not replacing one individual with a newer individual that implements the exact same policies. So, so that's what we're talking about, both in the global south and, and here in the U.S. Well, very good, Fidel. We're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about you? Where can they go? Well, I, I teach at Denison University here in Ohio, and I run the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. You'll find me on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and so on, and many other MMT economists, by the way, people like Stephanie Kelton, whose mm. book, The The Deficit Myth, is uh, has been a bestseller in the New York Times list for a number of months now. People like Scott Fulweiler, Matt Forstatter, Randy Ray, Warren Mosler, Bill Mitchell in Australia, and, and so many other colleagues associated with the Global Institute. Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. I forgot to mention my, my colleague, Pavlina Cherneva, also. I'm probably forgetting a lot of other names, but many of those sure. names you'll find on social media, on, online, and reach out and uh, learn more and engage with us. Very good. Fidel, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.